welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. We have been in the last few uh, weeks, months, actually probably now, in the book of Isaiah. And um, last Sunday morning, I, I got myself in a bit of a bind, actually, because I realized as I was preaching from uh, Isaiah chapter 6, I had too much material for one sermon, uh, but maybe not enough for two. And, and I figured, what am I going to do? Am I going to do one long one or two short ones? And then I figured, um, I've never ever heard of a congregation kill a preacher for being too short. <laughs> and, and so I made a decision to do short rather than long. I, I um, Actually, echoing in my head was um, John Maxwell, who once said, if you're really bad and short, people will forgive you. <laughs> but if you're bad and long, you will live a very short life. <laughs> so, given that that was the case, we are in the book of Isaiah. I'm going to read the chapter again because we got up to verse 8. And uh, I divided the chapter into three portions we talked about a holy God, a humbled servant, and a hard message. And we covered the first two parts of that, a holy God and a humbled servant. The, book reads, the chapter reads like this. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts." Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is purged. I also heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. And we're picking up our thoughts from this verse, verse 9. And he said to me, go and tell this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and be healed. Then I said, Lord, how long? And he answered, until the cities are laid waste and without inhabitants, the houses are without a man and the land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. But yet a tenth will be in it, and will return and be for consuming as a terebinth tree, or as an oak, whose stump remains when it is cut down, so the holy seed shall be its stump. Um, this, this is a seminal passage in the book of Isaiah, and particularly, really, in the whole of the scriptures. Um, We talked last week, uh, answered the question, is this Isaiah's initial call or a subsequent call? You can make up your mind on that. I've opted for the initial call and the first five chapters being placed in front of this call as a kind of prologue to the whole of the book. We, as I say, talked about a holy God, 
and a servant who was totally humbled. Not so much, as I talked about last week, humbled by his sin, although that happens when we are encountered in a way like this by God, but also with regard to his strengths. It's not just the sanctifying and healing of our broken parts, but our strengths. The lips, he said, I'm a man of unclean lips. The lips to a prophet are what the legs are to a dancer, or the fingers are to a concert pianist, or the right arm is to a pitcher. This is, this is his strength, his pride. From, from his speech, he could derive his identity, his security. And it's in the presence of the Lord, not only that our weaknesses are dealt with, but sometimes the Lord will vaporize the glue of um, our identity, which is built falsely around our strengths. And we, and we talked about that last week. Isaiah is profoundly, psychologically reorientated as a result of this encounter with God's holiness. He's completely humbled. And then in verses 9 through 13, we see him given a very hard message. Most sermons on Isaiah 6 conclude verse 8, in part because of the incredibly disturbing character of the remainder of this chapter. Isaiah is commissioned by God, and it's perhaps one of the oddest commissions that God ever gave any prophet. The language, by the way, of verse 9 is in the imperative form in the Hebrew, which means that these are commands. God isn't simply describing what the result of Isaiah's message will be, but he is saying, I'm commanding you, Isaiah, to make this happen. Now, I'll be with you to ensure that it happens, but this is a command. And basically, the command goes, your message will affect a hard heartening and a spiritual blindness in your hearers. The people are bad, and your preaching will make them worse, and I want it this way. That raises some immediate questions. I mean, how can a holy, righteous God actually purpose that people's hearts will be hardened so that they will not be healed but be judged? How can it be that God actually purposes, desires, and unhealed people? Questions like this are incredibly disturbing for Christians who have been brought up and conditioned toward an emphasis on God's forgiving grace and on his desire to deliver, to save, and to heal people. Why would God do this? What's going on? Now, I want to just say first that the people's confusion and hardening were not the result of a message that Isaiah preached that was hard to grasp or somehow profoundly veiled. He actually brought the word of the Lord to them with fresh, even unparalleled clarity. In Isaiah 28, the sophisticated people of Jerusalem are mocking Isaiah, and what they mock him for is his teaching's simplicity. They don't mock him for being incredibly um, obscure. They mock him for being sim simple, both in his content and his expression. In verse 8 of chapter 28, they say to him, we're not babies in diapers to be talked down to by you, such as da, 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 and blah, 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 blah. That's a good little girl. That's a good little boy. They're totally mocking Isaiah for the simplicity and clarity of his message. But if it was so simple, if it was so clear, how is it possible that they could miss it? How could they be hardened by it? Now, I just want to say up front that their unintelligibility is not some capricious act of judgment out of the spiritual blue from God. 
there is a profound reason that this is the way it is. Alec Moitier in his commentary says, when the simple intelligibility of God's word is refused, divine judgment falls in the shape of unintelligibility. So essentially what we have here is a people who will not understand and then ultimately a people who cannot understand. The bottom line of this hard message, verses 9 through 13, is that it is God's judgment on Israel's idolatry. They have turned to idols. Now you might recall as I read that you you didn't hear the word idol or the word idolatry. It's not mentioned in these verses. However, Though the word is not mentioned, the concept is nonetheless very present. And it's present on previous descriptions of their condition. In Isaiah chapter 1, verse 29, it says, Shame will cover you and you will blush to think of all those times you sacrificed to idols in your groves of sacred oaks. In Isaiah chapter 2, verse 8, And idols, the land is full of them. They are man-made, and yet you worship them, small and great, all bow before them. God will not forgive you for this sin. Isaiah 2, verse 20, Then at last they will abandon their gold and their silver idols to the moles and to the bats. So the the preface to this chapter is this is a people given to idolatry. And Isaiah chapter 6 is probably the foundational passage in the Bible on the impact of idolatry on people. What I want you to do as we go through this is to put on your spiritual bifocals. Remember I talked right at the beginning is when you read Isaiah, you really need bifocal glasses. You look down at the present context, you look up to see the future echoes of this present context. And um, we need to put on our spiritual bifocals here, since idolatry is not just something that's primitive. It really has something to do with us. At the very core of our being, we are imaging creatures. When we were made in Genesis chapter 1, 26, God said, let us make man, human beings in our image and make them reflecting our nature. So we are imaging creatures. If we do not, and in this case, will not image God, then by default, we will reflect or we will image something else. I've used G.K. Chesterton's quote before, but it's such a good quote. He says, when man ceases to worship God, he does not worship nothing. He worships everything. And with apologies to Chesterton, perhaps we could change it to read, when a man stops imaging God, he does not image nothing, but he images everything. We are imaging creatures. It's part of our nature. And what people revere, they resemble, either for their ruin or their restoration. Okay? What people revere, they will ultimately end up resembling, either for ruin or restoration. When people turn their hearts to idols, they will be judged by being, being made in the image of those idols. Legal terms is lex talionis, the principle of law and retaliation, that a punishment inflicted should correspond in degree and in kind to the offense of the wrongdoer, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. This is what's happening to this people. That idea, by the way, is spelled out in a number of passages very, very clearly. Psalm 115 and Psalm 135, both of them are parallel passages. I'm reading to you the passage from Psalm 115, verses 4 to 6. But their idols are silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak. 
eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear, noses but cannot smell. They have hands but cannot feel, feet but cannot walk, nor can they utter a sound with their throats. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust them. They don't see, and therefore you worship them, you don't see. They don't hear, you worship them, you don't hear. God is revealing to Isaiah that Israel is being given what they wanted. They are beginning to resemble the very objects that they revered. Their idols were deaf and dumb. So these people are becoming progressively deaf and dumb to spiritual realities. In Scripture, whenever the organs of spiritual perception, the eyes, the ears, the heart, are seen to be non-functional, then that language indicates that the sin of idolatry is in view and is at the root of the failure. So when you read about a people who see but don't see, hear but don't hear, you can go back and the root cause is generally related to idolatrous worship. Isaiah 42, in verses 17 to 20, go like this. But those who trust in idols, who say to the images, you are our gods, will be turned back and utter shame. Hear you deaf, look you blind, and see. And then he says, who is blind but my servant? Deaf like my messenger I send. He's saying, Israel, you were supposed to be my servant. The one who was supposed to be a light to the nations. But you've worshipped idols. And as a result of worshipping these deaf, dumb idols, you've become deaf and dumb. Who is blind like the one in covenant with me, he says. Blind like the servant of the Lord. You have seen many things, but you pay no attention. Your ears are open, but you do not listen. God's charge against Israel, the community of faith, was that they had given their heart to things other than God, and they were starting to look like those things, and they were being deafened and dumbed by, those, by that idol worship, losing any sense of spiritual reality. Isaiah 44, 9, all who make idols are nothing, and the things they treasure are worthless. Those who would speak up for them are blind. They are ignorant to their own shame. Idolatry, blindness. Idolatry, deafness. Idolatry, dumbness. Verse 18. They know nothing. They understand nothing. Their eyes are plastered over so they cannot see. Their minds are closed so they cannot understand. The reason is idolatry. The scripture is incredibly clear. What we give ourselves to, we image We are imaging creatures. We will reproduce the things we revere to our ruin or to our restoration. Listen to this passage in 2 Kings. But they would not listen and were stiff-necked. By the way, when you find that phrase, they are stiff-necked, it's almost always related back to the very first uh, corporate act of idolatry. As the people were brought out of Egypt and uh, they got the law around Mount Sinai, Moses is up the mountain. These people make uh, a golden calf and they worship that. And the thing about a calf or a bull in its nature is that stiff-necked rebellion and and resistance to the owner's directions. And whenever you have this phrase, Israel is stiff-necked, it's related back nearly always to this initial act of idolatry. And the people's... uh, perpetuating that idolatry through the years so that they become exactly like the object they worship, stiff-necked. 
stiff-necked as their ancestors who did not trust in the Lord their God. They rejected his decrees and covenant that he'd made with their ancestors and statutes he had warned them to keep. They followed worthless idols and they became worthless. One translation says they followed vanity, they became vain. You reproduce the object of your worship. We, we mustn't pass over this message of Isaiah chapter 6 and think really that it only pertains to past generations, to, to more primitive people. This passage is quoted in all four Gospels. Isaiah 6 verses 9 through 10 is found in Matthew 13, 13, Mark 4, 12, Luke 8, 10, John 12 and 39. That, that is unusual for a start, and I think it says something to us about the ongoing relevance of this particular issue. Now, in Jesus' time, idolatry didn't take the form of people bowing down to some molten image. It took the form of a slavish devotion to tradition. The people in Jesus' time, especially the Pharisees, put their trust in and derived their ultimate security from tradition rather than the ongoing relationship that God wanted them to have with him. And as I say, we need in these days to have our spiritual bifocals on because idolatry remains an ongoing issue for us since we remain imaging creatures. Don't think just that this happens outside of the community of faith. All of this stuff is addressed to the community of faith. I think that when we talk of idolatry, contemporary people conjure up images of people primitive people bowing down before some altar, some molten image, or some totem pole. However, it's not a primitive problem, it's a human problem. And our culture is not fundamentally different or exempt. Each culture in and time is subject to its own set of idols. Each culture has its own priesthood, its own totems, its own rituals, its own shrines. In our day, they might look more like office towers or perhaps gymnasiums, or perhaps sports stadiums, or maybe movie theaters. The gods of beauty might, and, and money, they might look a little different from the way they did in Greece, from the way they did in Rome, but their influence in shaping power remains absolutely undiminished. Young girls in our culture may not bow down before a statue of Aphrodite, but so many are driven into depression and eating disorders and compulsive exercise regimes because of an obsessive concern over their body image. People may not burn incense to Lakshmi, the, the Hindu god of prosperity, but they still, in our society, elevate money and career to cosmic proportions and perform a kind of child sacrifice in neglecting their family to achieve a high place in business or prestige or wealth. For most of us, idolatry is not about molten images on mantelpieces. It's about the response of adoration and trust that we give to something that is less than Jehovah God. It's the place we find our identity, our security, our safety. It's what we give our loyalty to. It is anything that's more important to us than God. It absorbs our heart, our time, our imagination. And you can measure it. You can measure it by your passion, your energy, your time your emotional and financial resources. Jesus said, and I paraphrase, 
you show me your bank statement and I'll show you the object of your worship. And as I said last week, you might be thinking, I don't recall Jesus saying anything like that. Well, I'm paraphrasing. I'm paraphrasing Matthew chapter 6, verse 21, where he says, For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The New Testament highlights two forms of idolatry that actually shape and define our present Western 21st century culture. Colossians says this, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Greed, which is idolatry. And then in Philippians chapter 3, verse 19, Paul says, Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. And their glory is in their shame. Our greed and our appetites. They have incredible capacity for being idolatrous. The consumerism of our culture, which is unrestrained, the unrestrained pursuit of wealth and hedonism, people who live to eat, drink, and copulate, little more. Those are idols in our culture. Money, sex, and power. They have taken on divine-like attributes, and they exercise idolatrous power over people. People who give themselves to the god of mammon, cold, hard cash, and end up becoming cold and hard and lacking any sense of their fellow men's needs, we become like the things we worship. We're increasingly becoming deaf, dumb, and blinded to spiritual realities. As I say, we might expect this from the nations, from those who don't know Yahweh, but Isaiah is not talking to those who don't know Yahweh. He is talking and addressing the faith community. The fascinating thing is, when Isaiah starts addressing the nations, as he does from chapter 13 through 29, he hardly ever mentions idolatry. The major issue he deals with with the nations is their pride and their arrogance. He doesn't talk to them about idolatry. Perhaps, perhaps because he doesn't expect anything else from them in one sense. But the community of faith... This is the issue. The tragedy is that it is God's people that have given themselves to idols. He speaks to this community in Isaiah chapter 2, and he says, you note, note the word full in this passage. He said, they are full of superstition from the east. They practice divination like the Philistines and embrace pagan customs. Their land is full of silver and gold. There is no end to their treasures. The land is full of horses. Consumerism, money, militarism. Their, hand is, their, their land is full of horses. There is no end to their chariots. Their land is full of idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their fingers have made. He's saying their reliance and their trust is not in me. Their identity and their security is found in places other than me. And it's made them deaf and dumb and ultimately always depraved. Idolatry leads always to that place of corruption in terms of ethics and morals. In Romans chapter 1, Paul paints a, a graphic picture, and I'm just going to read you a couple of portions. I don't think it's going to come up there. Let me just, let me read to you from Romans chapter 1. 
He says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their heart to dishonor their bodies among themselves. So Paul is saying these people refusing to worship God, being ungrateful, And the end result of that process leads them into moral corruption. In this passage, by the way, Paul is alluding back to various passages in the Old Testament where people turned away from Yahweh to idols, and nearly all of them have their root in that time at Sinai. So in Psalm 106, for example, he's saying, it says, At Horeb they made a calf and worshipped an idol cast from metal. They exchanged their glorious God for an image of a bull which eats grass. They forgot the God who saved them. Jeremiah says, My people have exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols. Hosea says the same. They exchanged their glorious God for something disgraceful. And in the end, they became disgraceful. So, I, so this passage in Romans, Paul picks up on it. Although they knew God, they glorified him not as God, nor gave thanks to him, but in their thinking they became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged. There's that word. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles, and then they became animal-like. They worshipped animals and ended up, as is always the case, behaving like them. By the way, later in his epistle, Paul talks about how this whole process can be reversed. And uh, I, I just want to read you a passage from Romans chapter 12. It says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. If you take Romans chapter 1, the portions that I read in Romans chapter 12, and pair them together, it's an interesting exercise. Because in Romans chapter 1, you find a people under wrath. In Romans chapter 12, you find a people who have found mercy. These people refused to glorify God. In Romans chapter 12, you have a people who are offering themselves as a sacrifice to God in gratitude for what he has done for them. These people dishonor their bodies. In Romans chapter 12, these people present their bodies. In Romans chapter 1, they end up with a reprobate mind, a mind that is completely debased. In Romans chapter 12, they end up with the mind being renewed. 
The people of Romans chapter one reject God's will and God's purposes. And not only do they reject it from, for themselves, but verse 32 says they cheer on other people who are rejecting it. In Romans chapter 12, we find a people who are learning increasingly to prove and approve of what God wants from them. It starts by a people who recognize, you know what, my heart is disordered. In the presence of God, we come to understand that something of disorder has significantly affected our hearts. I think it was Calvin who once said, the heart, the human heart is an idol factory. And I am constantly amazed at our capacity to become addicted and, and idolatrous toward almost anything in our society, whether it be exercise, food, movies, you, sex, power, you name it. We have the capacity to focus on it and for it to become idolatrous. And here we are being asked as the community of faith to come to our senses and to come back to Yahweh. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God that have been extended to you, Paul says, to present your bodies a living sacrifice holy and acceptable unto God. It's your reasonable service, or rather it is your reasonable worship. That's how it reads. And be not conformed to this world. J.B. Phillips says, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. Everything about us in terms of the cultural current is designed to squeeze you into a mold. And Paul says, don't let that happen. But let your mind be renewed and changed from within by the power of of a holy life that comes as a result of God's mercy and grace toward us. I'm going to ask if the team would come, and uh, we're going to give just some opportunity for us to refocus and uh, perhaps to repent, depending on what God is just speaking to you. The idea of this is not to bring you under condemnation, but to bring you to a point where you say, you know what, Lord, I do recognize that, that, that that's getting out of hand that that obsession is actually not a healthy one, and I need to bring it back under control. Maybe there's some dealings that you and I need to do in the presence of the Lord this morning. But if not, and your heart is clean and clear, then let's worship together. Let's focus on Him, and ultimately we might look like Him. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, Check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.